This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to spend some time on one detail that comes from the Gospel reading, which in its long version is taken from Matthew 5, 17-37. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Rather, I'm only going to read verses 21-26, through which is part of the passage that's relevant for our purposes here. So here's what we read. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. This is Jesus talking, by the way. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The key detail that's relevant for apologetics here is Jesus' statement that the individual will be put in prison and will never get out till he has paid the last penny. As I argue in my book, Purgatory is for Real, good news about the afterlife for those who aren't perfect yet, this prison is a reference to purgatory. To begin, we note that there is an accuser, and that the accused must reconcile with the accuser lest he be justly thrown into prison, and that this suggests that some wrong has been done by the accused. And since Jesus speaks of the accused being thrown into prison on account of that wrongdoing and having to pay a debt in order to get out, it follows that Jesus teaches that the offender has to pay for his sins, whatever form that payment may take. But is Jesus referring to a place of repayment only in this life? Or is he referring to a a repayment in the next, which also has implications for earthly affairs? I'm going to argue for the latter here. Anyone who reads the Gospels knows that Jesus likes to teach with parables, right? And those parables, Jesus uses examples from everyday life and common human experience to teach how we are to walk justly in this life, to be sure. But it's always with our eternal destination in mind. In fact, the next life takes definitive priority in Jesus' teaching. So consider, for example, the parable of the wedding feast in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. There, Jesus is not only teaching us about how to be humble when we're invited to dine at table with honorable people, but primarily about that day when we stand before Christ in judgment. Another example is the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus isn't restricting his teaching to being prepared for unexpected events in this life, although that's part of it. Rather, his ultimate lesson is for us to be prepared for his coming in judgment, 
whether that's at the end of our lives or at the end of time. So given this pedagogy of Jesus, it's not reasonable for us to read his use of this this world example of judgment and payment of debts in Matthew 5, 25 through 26 as applying to this life alone. On the contrary, we have every reason to think that he's trying to teach us something about the judgment that matters most, our judgment at death. Now, not only does Jesus' general pedagogy give us reason to think he's talking about afterlife issues, but there's also evidence in the immediate and wider context of the passage that gives grounds for a post-mortem, after-death, interpretation. We can start with the Greek word for prison, phulake. It's used to refer to a physical prison throughout the Bible, to be sure, but St. Peter does use it for a post-mortem, after-death, prison in 1 Peter 3.19, where he describes the prison in which the Old Testament righteous souls were kept before Jesus' ascension, and that which Jesus visited during the separation of his soul and body in death. Now, by itself, the use of fulake doesn't do much to support an afterlife interpretation, since it is used both ways in the Bible, this life and the afterlife. But when this detail is combined with the context of Matthew 5, 25 through 26, which I'm going to argue refers to the afterlife, it becomes reasonable to conclude that its use here in Matthew 5, 25 is within the vein of the Christian tradition found in 1 Peter 3, 19. The first contextual detail that supports a post-mortem interpretation is Jesus' teaching about judgment, and this is within the immediate context. We read in verses 21 through 22 of Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus' reference to the individual being judged worthy of hellfire That suggests that Jesus is talking not only about earthly judgments, but primarily about afterlife judgment. Think about it. The authority to judge someone worthy of hellfire, who does that belong to? That belongs to no judge except God, since God alone has access to the inner movements of the heart, as 2 Chronicles 6, verse 30 points out. Now, this motif of judgment is also found within the wider context of Matthew 5, and it doesn't involve judgments made by earthly judges. Rather, again, it involves divine judgment, judgment made by God. So, for example, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus warns, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on in verses 22 through 23 to talk about rejecting evildoers on the day. That is the day of judgment. And you can also check out Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, chapter 11, verses 22 and 24, and chapter 12, verses 36 through 37. So given that Matthew 5, 22 speaks of judgment rendered by God, that's the immediate context of our passage in question, and that the wider subsequent context of Matthew 5 has several references to God rendering judgment on the day of judgment, It's reasonable to conclude that the judge spoken of in Matthew 5, 25 through 26, refers to God, 
who will render judgment on the day of judgment for each soul. And since judgment comes after death, according to Hebrews 9.27, we have good reason to think this prison here, into which the judge cast the wrongdoer, refers to a post-mortem, after-death prison, where payment for sins are made. This motif of judgment provides a rationale as to why the context involves things that pertain to the afterlife and our eternal salvation. So, consider these, for example. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven as our ultimate goal in the Beatitudes. That's Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Jesus reveals that it's possible to be guilty of sin, yet still be a citizen of his kingdom which means there's such a thing as venial sin, Matthew 5, 19. Jesus teaches that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if we want to go to heaven, Matthew 5, 20. Jesus teaches about the rewards of heaven for acts of piety, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus teaches about treasures in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It would be odd for Jesus to give teachings about the afterlife and our eternal salvation immediately before and after Matthew 5, 25 through 26, but have Matthew 5, 25 through 26 refer only to something that pertains to this life. So we can conclude based upon this, Jesus' teaching about judgment and paying debts applies not only to this life, but it also applies to the next. Now, someone might object and say, well, just because it's a place of repayment after death, that doesn't mean it's purgatory. It could be hell. Now, in response, there are three reasons I would suggest to not interpret this prison as an everlasting prison, i.e. hell. First, the prison in 1 Peter 3.19 is a temporary holding place for the righteous souls there. So if Matthew is using fulake in the same sense in Matthew 5.25, which it seems he is, then it would follow that the prison Jesus speaks of is a temporary holding place as well. Second reason, the natural reading of Jesus' statement is that the person who's being put in the prison can eventually get out just as a debtor would in the ancient world when he pays all his debt. Notice Jesus says, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Now, a possible counter here is that Jesus' statement, until you pay the last penny, could mean that the individual will forever pay his debt. The use of the word until doesn't necessarily mean that his payment would eventually come to an end. So, for example, we don't say Christ will eventually stop reigning over his enemies just because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, it's true that the word until doesn't necessarily prove that the debt is payable. It could refer to an eternal paying of an unpayable debt, but such a reading would require further evidence to override the natural meaning of Jesus' words. Once the debtor pays his debt, he can get out of the prison. Take, for example, the debt owed by the wicked servant in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. The servant in the parable owed the king 10,000 talents, according to verse 24 of Matthew 18. A talent of silver was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. One denarius typically was worth a day's wage, so a single talent is worth about 16.4 years of daily wages. 
If the servant in the parable owed 10,000 talents, then he owed about 60 million denarii, which is equivalent to about 164,000 years of daily wages. <laughs> in other words, he owed a debt he could not he could never pay. And not just that he couldn't in fact pay it off in this life, but that the debt wasn't payable in principle. That's the message. That's the point. And according to the narrative, the king mercifully forgave the servant's debt. But because the servant didn't show the same mercy to those who owed him, the king handed the wicked servant over to the jailers, quote, until he should pay all his debt, there in Matthew 18, 34. Given that it would have been impossible for the servant to pay back 10,000 talents, which according to the late Anglican New Testament scholar T. France is like saying he owed zillions, and the fact that Jesus' parables are meant to teach us things about our eternal destination in mind, uh, the prison most likely represents hell. Hell's the only state of existence in the afterlife that matches up with a soul having an eternal debt and thus an eternal payment of that debt. Notice that there is evidence in the text itself to suggest that the debt is unpayable, thereby revealing that the prison is not temporary but everlasting. And this, my friends, stands in stark contrast to the debt mentioned in Matthew 5, 25 through 26. There is nothing in the text to suggest that the debt is unpayable, like it was in Matthew 18. Thus, there's nothing to suggest that the prison is everlasting. So in these two passages, Matthew 5, Matthew 18, you have the same phrase, pay, uh, will not get out until you pay all of the debt, right? Well, the natural reading is that the debt is payable and the prisoner will eventually get out of the prison. But in Matthew 18, we have evidence to suggest otherwise, to read it in a way that's not its natural reading, because the evidence suggests the debt is unpayable. But that's lacking in Matthew 5. No evidence that the debt is unpayable, and so it's reasonable to conclude that the debt is payable in Matthew 5, and read it according to its natural reading. Now, there's another stark contrast with Matthew 18 that some have pointed out, and that's Jesus' emphasis on paying the last penny there in Matthew 5. The Greek word for penny is chondrontes, which was worth less than 2% of a day's wage for a first century agricultural laborer. Now, some have suggested that this suggests the debt for the offense is payable and thus a temporary punishment. So, for example, St. Jerome writes, a farthing or a penny is a coin con containing two mites. What he says then is, thou shalt not go forth thence till thou hast paid for the smallest sins. So the reasoning is like this. Given that Jesus speaks of paying the debt without any evidence that the debt is unpayable, like in Matthew 18, and that there is an emphasis on the chondrontes, unlike in Matthew 18, it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus is referring to a temporary post-mortem prison. So notice what we're doing there. We're combining the lack of evidence to suggest that the debt is unpayable and the emphasis on chondrontes combined together provides grounds for a reasonable interpretation of a temporary post-mortem prison. Now, someone might suggest that when Jesus speaks of paying off debts in Matthew 5.26 and Matthew 18.34, all he means is that God will see to it that every sin is accounted for. But this alternative reading fails to consider that God accounts for every sin, down to the last one, 
for souls in both purgatory and hell. It's precisely this divine accounting that determines whether a soul ends up in hell or in purgatory. Therefore, we can affirm that God accounts for every sin, down to the last one of the soul that's thrown into the prison spoken of in Matthew 5, 26, and still conclude it's a temporary punishment. God's account for sin is not the primary issue in these parables. It's whether the debt is payable or not. And again, we have good reason to think that the debt is payable in Matthew 5, unlike the unpayable debt in Matthew 18. Now, there's one last thing to consider when interpreting this passage. It was common Jewish belief shortly before the time of Christ that souls in the afterlife were in fact released from the effects of sin. This is supported by 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 38 through 45, where Judas Maccabeus and his soldiers pray that the sins of their fallen comrades would be remitted. Given this Jewish theological milieu, Matthew's Jewish audience would have been very familiar with the idea of a post-mortem temporary prison where sins are paid for. Such a milieu provides further reason to think that Jesus intended this post-mortem prison to be temporary, especially when there's nothing in the text to suggest otherwise. Well, my friend, that does it for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. We're now equipped with some strategies for arguing in support of the doctrine of purgatory from Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5, 25 through 26. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast, and please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. Also, if you're interested in getting some cool mugs and stickers with my logo, Mr. Sunday Podcast, <laughs> go to shop.catholic.com. Of course, that's a ripoff of Mr. Clean, if you didn't catch that, because I got a bald head that kind of thing. I hope, my friends, that you have a great sixth Sunday of Ordinary Time. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.